you have a copy of God's Word, they're available to you. I invite you to join me in the little letter, First Peter, the second chapter. We continue our series of messages through Second Peter. First Peter, excuse me, First Peter, chapter two. We'll begin reading at verse four. Verse four, and read through verse eight. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of our God. Join me in prayer for a moment. Our Father, we ask now that by your Spirit, you make your word effective in our lives this day. Where there is spiritual blindness, grant sight. Where there is deafness, hearing. Where there is hard-heartedness, a heart of flesh. Father, do by your spirit what we cannot do with our cleverness or our effort. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, how often do we find ourselves convinced of our own rightness about something? Fill in the blank. And we know we see it properly only to find out a sudden epiphany, sometimes an embarrassing one, that changes our view and our certainty is gone. We tend to interpret things through a lens that makes us look good, other people not so much, and far too easily we include the Lord among the other people. C.S. Lewis had a student in a tutorial. The student presented a paper. Now, this is the British system, not like the American system. In these tutorials, the professor sat there and listened as the student would read a paper and then was to comment on the paper, give him some feedback. Well, Lewis fell asleep as the student was reading the paper. And the student was furious He objected. He'd paid good money and wanted comment. He expected comment. And Lewis's response was, son, sleep is a comment. (laughs) Some of you just took great comfort from that as I'm getting ready to preach. Peter is writing to fledgling churches. 
scattered around the area of what we know today as Turkey. They are seeing the beginning of persecution. This is early in the reign of Nero, likely. Some persecution has begun. It will only get worse. Peter will die under Nero's reign. The Apostle Paul will die under that same reign. They are seeing the beginning of this persecution, and he is trying to help them, encourage them, for standing in the face of persecution. How do you do this? Well, if you go back a little bit, what we looked at before, he reminds them of some things. He calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. He says, God chose you for this. The persecution, the trials, actually is going to strengthen their faith. Trouble, struggle, trials are often for the good of our souls. He tells them the whole history of salvation, all the way back to the prophets, is preparing them for this, that there are angels, those glorious beings that surround the throne of God, who want to look into these things. They are so amazed by what they see. Further, they've been given a new nature, a new birth. They have been fundamentally changed. Now, you read this text, and you don't have to be a biblical scholar to see some fairly straightforward metaphor and pictures. Stone, living stones, spiritual house, holy priesthood, spiritual sacrifices. And then back to that theme of building, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, precious. In reading that text, I can't help but think, about who the author is. It's Peter. And Peter, who initially is known as Simon, you read in the account in Matthew's Gospel, the 16th chapter, Jesus asked his disciples, so who do people say I am? And they give him the routine. Some say this, some say that, some say something else. Jesus said, well, who do you say I am? And this is where Simon Peter gets it gloriously right. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen one, the son of the one true God. Now, Jesus says, well done, right? Bravo. It reminds him, it was not flesh and blood that revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And he goes on to say, you know, from now on, you're going to be known as Petros, rock. <laughs> and immediately, Rocky gets it wrong. Because Jesus starts talking about his betrayal and his crucifixion. And Simon Peter, likely somewhat older than Jesus at that time, Takes him aside. Now, 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 Jesus, can't be talking like that. You, you're really taking all the starch out of the guys. I know I'm paraphrasing, but that's in essence what it was. Don't talk, that's not going to happen. And in the same instant here, just it appears to be minutes apart, Jesus turns on him and says, Get behind me, Satan. You care for the things of this world. 
not for the things of God. Wow. You've got to know that Peter has this in mind. And not just what had happened to him, but there was a heritage, a history of this picture in the Old Testament of rocks, if you will, that had an impact in the life of the people of God. You have the Lord providing water out of a rock. Not supposed to happen, but miracles by their very nature defy the normative. It wasn't just that, but the imagery of the temple and the cornerstone being set. Further, there was the prophecy in Daniel. You remember Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and Daniel tells him the dream, and in the dream there's this idol that's made out of several different substances, from the top gold all the way down to the feet that are of iron and clay. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a stone, and Daniel notes, a stone that was cut not with human hands, and this stone comes hurtling out, strikes the idol, turns it to dust, and the stone becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. It's a picture of the kingdom and the growth of the kingdom. And that all the nations of this world ultimately submit and fall by the wayside to the reign of our great God. So when Peter talks about the rock, he does it out of an Old Testament context and he does it out of his own experience. And he's doing it here for these believers 2,000 years ago and he's doing it for us. You see, we're always looking for a relationship to God somehow outside of Christ. We, we cannot seem to learn our lesson we think that there are other ways to get this thing done. And Peter won't let us do that. He, in essence, is saying Christ is the place you either stand or the place you stumble, but he is the key to this whole thing. First consideration. He calls him the living stone. Now, the words here, the phrases are mingled together, but the emphasis here for this first thing, as you come to him, being there at verse 4, a living stone then further to verse 5 you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ he calls Christ the living stone that's an interesting metaphor isn't it stone doesn't live in fact Jesus will at one point, whenever he makes the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and the Pharisees and others are saying, tell them to stop, because they were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You remember one of Jesus' response to them? If they don't, the rocks will. That was meant to get your attention, my friend. That the Lord can make stone, if you will, shout. He uses a picture here, not of a dead temple or a dead cornerstone, but Christ as the source, the author of life, and the foundation of life, having life and giving life. You come to him a living stone. But that's not all. 
Christ is not only the living stone, he makes us living stones, right? You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Have you noticed the Lord has very little interest in the New Testament and the New Covenant over matters of space and architecture? There are no instructions about the building of buildings because the buildings are not important other than the one building that is a living building. That Christ builds his kingdom. This transition is not a small thing. For it goes from the idea of a centralized temple in Israel, on Temple Mount, in Jerusalem, a physical building, which Jesus says within a generation will be left not one stone on top of another, and he shifts the picture away from Jerusalem and that physical temple to the whole world and a living temple. In one view, each of us as living temples. In another, all of us living temples, living stones built together to create one place where God dwells. That is an astonishing thing. We get very excited about the idea of a centralized location where God would show up. You know, I've heard people, well, I'd sure love to have been there and seen the tabernacle or been there to seen the Lord come down on the temple. And, and, and I get it, but I also want to let you in on a little something. My friend, what you observe and see in the church, if you have eyes of faith, is more glorious than that ever was. Because even the message in God coming down on the tabernacle and the temple was, I am here, but you're out there. And don't you dare come near me except as I tell you to come near me. Try to come near me any other way, it will cost you your life. But now because of Christ, God in the flesh, the meeting place of God and man is united in humanity in the one true Son of God. And the temple fills the whole world. Christ makes us living stones. And it has to be his work for him to bring about a spiritual house, holy priesthood, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. See, my friend, when you became Christian, an astonishing thing did happen. Your nature is changed. But you weren't changed so much that you don't need Jesus anymore. It is never that much change without him. Calvin put it this way, there's never such purity found in our sacrifices that they are of themselves acceptable to God. Our self-denial is never entire and complete. Our urge to pray is never so sincere as it ought to be. We're never so zealous and so diligent in doing good, but that our works are imperfect and mingled with many vices. Nevertheless, Christ gains favor for them. They are accepted not for the merit of their own excellency, but through Christ. It ought to kindle the ardor of our efforts all the more when we hear that God deals so indulgently with us as to set a value on our works in Christ which in themselves deserve nothing. Because what we do is in Christ. They matter in the sight of God. And my friend, this is truly what sets Christianity apart in this world. 
Every other philosophy, all other religions, all other spiritualities are typically some version of self-help methodologies. They're, they're always inviting you to perform some kind of work, engage in some kind of ritual, to search within yourself, seeking some experience. But the Christian gospel doesn't point to self-discovery and self-performance. The heart of the Christian gospel is an invitation not to turn inward, not to learn some new set of behaviors, but to meet another person, to come into close connection with in relationship with somebody else entirely outside ourselves. It is to meet Jesus Christ. My friend, that's the question. Have you met him since we come to him, the living stone? Second consideration, he's not only living, describes him as the chosen stone. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now that's a quote from Isaiah, 28th chapter. The next quote, the stone the builder rejected, is from Psalm 118. And then the stone of stumbling, rock of offense, from Isaiah 8. He cites three different Old Testament passages, beginning with the idea that he is chosen. Now, there's a great emphasis today in many of our evangelical churches in our preaching, trying to get people to choose Christ. How do we get people to choose Jesus? That seems to be a very determinative factor, right? How do we get them to trust Jesus? How do we get them to come to him? Now, undoubtedly, when we come to him, we have made a choice, but we've got to be careful how we think about this. This has led to some very diminishing understandings of who Jesus is. Poor Jesus. Standing on the stoop outside your heart. Knocking on the door. Oh, please let me in. It's cold out here. You remember what it was like in school? Recess? Now, some, maybe they don't do recess. I don't know. I don't. We used to get three recesses. We'd get 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the afternoon. And if you ate your lunch fast enough, you had almost 30 minutes at lunchtime. Unsupervised, other than the rather harried and miserable teachers who had playground duty. And we did a lot of team sports, and we'd choose up teams. This time of year, we were just waiting for it to warm up enough and dry up enough that we could start playing softball. And there was always that fun social experiment of choosing teams. <laughs> Many egos were made <laughs> and absolutely destroyed in the process of being picked for teams. Now, the only way I was ever chosen first is if I had a friend that was a team captain. And even then, it wasn't certain, depending on how bad he wanted to win. I mean, I wasn't a bad ball player, but I wasn't the best ball player. And thankfully, I was not typically the last chosen. I was somewhere in the meaty middle. But we find that it's like, oh, if I'm going to be chosen, I'm going to be chosen. We, we kind of struggle with that even as adults. You know? Who gets the promotion? Who got the raise? We're looking for this affirmation. Can I let you know a little secret? Jesus isn't like that. 
He is made no more glorious and he is not made any greater by you coming to him. This is completely a one-way street the other direction. You coming to him does immense good to you. Eternal, glorious things for you. It doesn't change who he is. He is already chosen by the Father. You know, he's not, I think sometimes folks look at it this way. You know, I tell you what, I've looked around the cafeteria of life, and, and I think I'll take one good job, a good career, an attractive spouse, a couple of children, few vehicles, nice home, a volunteer position somewhere so I can feel better about myself, and a couple of hobbies, and oh, by the way, let's throw in a small serving of Jesus. That's not how this works. Forever this must be remembered, Jesus Christ is chosen by his Father. He is the precious one to his Father. This is my beloved Son. And it is in knowing him that we are so dramatically changed. Now, you know, I had to find something from Spurgeon because it always does my soul good to read Mr. Spurgeon. He put it this way, certain men are best respected where they are least known. Now ponder that for a moment. Best respected where you're least known. The less you know me, the more you like me. Okay? Many a character needs distance to lend enchantment to the view. But our Lord is most precious to those who are best acquainted with him. Those who are actually trusting him and, and thus putting him to the test are those who have the highest opinion of him. If you'd have the best estimate of the Lord Jesus, we refer you to those who have had transactions with him on the largest scale, to those who cast all their care upon him for time and eternity. Their proof of him is so satisfactory that he is more and more esteemed every day. He is far more precious to them than when they first heard of him. And every thought of him makes them dearer to their hearts. What a glorious friend is he who is most precious to those who receive the most from him. Wow. All right. He's the living stone. He's the chosen stone. Now here's a sad reality, but one that must be addressed. He is also the stumbling stone. A living stone rejected by men, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Rejection here is another word for unbelief. They have rejected him. And it is a rejection of the one whom God has chosen. Now you see, for the believer, this is still at times something of the battle. I think we saw it, we referenced it earlier, Matthew 16. I don't think Peter went from being Christian to being non-Christian, from confessing you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, to then when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, I don't think he went from saved to lost redeemed to unredeemed, I think he was just really confused and needed correction. 
But my friend, understand, you either believe his claims and thus believe in him or you don't. This unbelief is rejection. And rejection doesn't change the reality. Rather, rejection simply means you stumble or fall on him as the place of your destruction. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Now, I know folks try to make Jesus neutral. Or maybe more accurately, they try to neutralize him. Well, you religious people, you get all worked up about Jesus, and we know that that's all very confused and confusing. Nobody got it right, and it took us in the modern era to come up with a right view of who Jesus is and what he did. Oh my goodness, what in the world did we ever do without you for 2,000 years? Jesus doesn't leave you options, really. Why do people stumble over him? Well, you think his claims are too much. I mean, God in the flesh? You do understand that if that's not true, it is one of the most arrogant and ridiculous statements ever made. You think his demand's too high. Love me first and foremost. You think your sins are small. What's all the fuss? I mean, I'm, I'm better than most. Well, my friend, the problem is you don't see how deep it goes, how broad it goes, how dark it actually is. We love our sins. And we think more highly of men than of God. But please grasp this. See, you, you're under an obligation now. You either stand firmly on this stone, or this stone is, the re, is causing your destruction. There's not a third option offered here. And that rejection is still part of God's plan. Notice what he says. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now that's a hard text. I'm not going to deny that's a hard text. It, it kind of echoes Romans 9, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make, his power, make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I know. Oh, now, preacher, you're going to go down that trail. Really, are you going to go down that trail? Well, I'm only going to go a little ways because... I think if we go too far, we get in trouble. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Do men and women freely reject Christ? Yes. Are they responsible for their rejection of Christ? Yes. Is their rejection somehow frustrating the plan and purpose of God? No. Wait a minute, how, how is that? Because folks, he's God and you're not. And he can. See, I'm astonished when I hear people talk flippantly about the thought of standing before the Almighty. Yes, I believe in the final judgment. 
I believe that is a certain reality. I don't know how you embrace orthodoxy enough. But I hear people flippantly talk about it and foolishly. Well, I just I hope the Lord just judges me for the good I've done. Whoa. Be careful, friend. You're assuming that your good outweighs your bad. And the Lord doesn't just look at what you've done, He looks about at what the whys, the wherefores. Your motives. They hold you to standards like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. I said it before, say it again. God's the ultimate straight grader. It's pass fail. <laughs> and fail is anything less than full and complete righteousness. And none of us have that. So our hope has to be outside ourselves. See, Jesus becomes the place you rest because of all that he's done and you know you can trust in him. Or he becomes the place of your destruction if you reject that. You see, we don't need... As one brother put it, we don't need a fresh physician, a new friend, a novel hope. We are to look for everything in Christ Jesus, the same yesterday and today and forever. We are complete in Him. Friend, if you don't know Christ, run to Him. Just as fast as you can. Call out for salvation. He will hear you. But oh, my friend, if you're his, isn't it a good and glorious and comforting thing to know you stand on the rock, the one who shall care for you and rescue you, finally save you. The living stone, the chosen one, is your Savior. Father, will you please now take this, your word, And move it deep into our hearts and souls. Father, there are some who've been under the sound of my voice this morning that may not know you. And Lord, you know, each week we make that assumption. My prayer is this is the day of their repentance and faith. And Father, for other believers, this has been both challenge for repentance and encouragement to stand firm. We rejoice that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It has set the house in right order. And that we are made living stones through him. May we rest fully in what Christ has done. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.